Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Painter Podcast, where birders talk birding. Every episode brings something new. I learn something different, and I hope you hear something a little different. This episode is my first for me. We recorded this in my guest's garage. We're going to do an outdoor recording. Uh, we're trying to keep our social distancing, and it's always more fun to meet with people in person. And since my guests are local uh, birders, I thought we could do that. We're going to meet outdoors. We could try it yesterday and then again this morning, and the weather just didn't cooperate. So here we are in the garage of Heather Bolish and Marcus Ronig, two Pierce County, Washington birders that I'm friends with and are top birders and really fun to talk with. I hope you enjoy the episode today. But before we get started, I wanted to talk a little bit about birding couples. Uh, birding couples are something uh, really uh, nice when it happens. A lot of birders uh, do their birding as one aspect of their lives, and then if they're in a relationship, have their partner as a kind of another aspect of their lives, not necessarily the same. Uh, I was lucky enough uh, with my marriage uh, to have my wife as the person who got me into birding. So I was part of a birding couple for 30-some years until Kay passed. And now my new partner, uh, Marion, is interested in learning a little bit about birding. So I kind of have it from both ends. Kay taught me to bird, and I'm helping teach Marion to bird. Uh, but the same sort of relationship with my guest today. Uh, Marcus Ronig was a birder from a fairly young age, and when he met Heather, uh, birding was an early and integral part of their relationship. So we'll get to hear that story today. I think you'll enjoy it. I certainly did. Uh, Marcus and Heather also have birded extensively in Mexico, so we get to talk a bit about Mexico birding today. Uh, they have made close to 30 trips to Mexico birding and uh, have birded most parts of the country. So a really great opportunity to hear from people who have uh, a lot of experience birding in Mexico. Uh, and that's one of my favorite places. I just love going to Mexico and uh, we'll get to hear a little bit about birding there, about safety issues there. Really good stuff when they talk today. I think you'll enjoy that. We also talk about Pierce County birding. Pierce County is a county in Washington state uh, that is a big county. It's in western Washington, west of the Cascades. Uh, so we don't get a lot of the birds of the prairies and plains and desert of eastern Washington, but we have a lot of great birding in western Washington. And Pierce County includes most of that. We don't have the open coast, but we have Puget Sound, we have Mount Rainier, we have the Fort Lewis prairies, uh, we have lots of uh, riparian habitat, uh, so have a good variety of habitats, and we always get a good list of birds each year. And over the last 10 years or so, uh, especially since eBird has become popular, we have developed a nice relationship of a close-knit group of birders here in Pierce County who communicate with each other regularly about birds they see. Of course, we can all find on eBird now. We all use eBirds, so we can all find out what each other is doing literally on an hour-by-hour -hour basis by stalking each other on eBird. Uh, but uh, we communicate by a text message chain. Uh, there's a, we have a group text that goes out, and when one of us finds a really good bird that the others might want to chase or just see something really interesting, we pop a text message on the group group text, and so we keep each other informed, help each other out that way. Uh, in other times, we would go birding a lot together. Bruce and I would go out birding together, Bruce Labar, uh, and uh, other Pierce birdies would go out together a lot. Now we tend to sometimes meet at places and bird a lot more alone, uh, especially in the early parts of this uh, COVID 
pandemic. Uh, but still, we stay pretty close in terms of communication by phone and email and text uh, and our text chain. So uh, Pierce County has a really nice group of birders uh, who cooperate and compete. Uh, competition, uh, always an undercurrent uh, of the cooperation. Uh, and it's a really fun relationship. I think you get a little bit of that in the podcast today when Heather and Marcus talk about it. So without further ado, help me welcome to the Bird Banner podcast, Marcus Ronig and Heather Balish local Pierce County birders, and friends. Marcus, Heather, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for doing this. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, we have a really cool group of Pierce County, Washington birders, and uh, I've had several of them on the, on the podcast. I've had Bruce, and I've had Will, and Peter, and probably some others that I'm not thinking about. But uh, you guys have been the, the most, most elusive of those that I've courted yet. So uh, I nailed you down. We're sitting here in Marks and Heather's garage, socially distanced at six feet due to COVID precautions. Mostly sort of outdoors, the doors open. And here we go. So welcome. Yesterday, we took on a little Pierce County challenge. Uh, Heather uh, is uh, a lister now. I don't know if you've always been a lister. You're a lister now in Pierce County and is was until a day or so ago tied with Bruce for the most birds this year and we went to the mountains hoping to find some species and uh, didn't work out so well but uh, what pro that was kind of you guys idea how'd, how'd you come up with that idea because we were talking to you about getting together and and we, we were I was tied with Bruce and I said we need to go to the mountains maybe we could just do it up there while we're chasing birds yeah that <laughs> would have been a great idea except for the weather right. Yes, we did encounter a little more snow than we had expected. And I take full blame for that. <laughs> you guys wanted to take a nice easy ride up to Paradise and we could probably pop out of the car and look at a bird and I said, oh, we've got government meadows, we have more chances there. And chances is the, the operative term. Yeah, but our weather hit it. We hiked through a lot of snow and in a little bit of rain and blowing down ice from the trees and slippery slopes and no place to sit. And, too miserable, cold, and tired to do a podcast afterwards. So here we are today. Yes, we are. Good. So talk a little bit about your experience with the with the Pierce group. We've got quite a cool group of birders. Yeah, there's just a really a nice cadre of folks that are very helpful and competitive at the same time. And, and eBird has certainly sort of revolutionized the fact that we can see on a daily basis and get alerts even to see if Bruce saw one more bird. And because of COVID, even though I'm working, I'm just home a whole lot more. And allows, I've noticed that. allows me to time shift, so Heather and I have been able to go out pretty much every morning in the spring that, that's even halfway decent. Yeah. And next thing we know, Heather's one ahead of me and, and tied with Bruce. So. Yeah, Bruce Labar, we're talking about Bruce Labar, who uh, was my guest on the episode number three, the second guest I had on the show after Ken. Uh, and has uh, been on a little episode in Texas with me too. So, but Bruce is the perennial number one yes. when Will doesn't get out and go for it. Perennial number <laughs> one uh, Pierce County lister each year and all time. Yeah. Uh, and takes quite a bit of pride in being number one all year long, I have to say. Yeah. Uh, I'll uh, uh, throw Bruce under the car a little bit. He says, I gotta get to the mountains tomorrow. Heather's tied with me. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so I knew we would have at least some catch-up to do, but all he got was mountain chickadee, I think, that day for new birds for him. So he's still only one ahead of you, and I thought we'd pass it yesterday, but it didn't happen. 
that pine grosbeak or that uh, three-toed woodpecker just wouldn't oblige. No. no. Uh, so uh, the the seasons here are uh, like they are everywhere. We have our winter birds, we have our spring migrants, we have our resident breeders, we have our fall migrants, we have our, you know, episodic, uh, you know, wandering birds that don't belong here. But uh, uh, I, I've found that I, my approach this year is I'm just waiting for them to come to me. I'm not trying to get, you know, I, I, I think as the year passes, I'll creep up in the standings a little bit. <laughs> I, I have not been, you know, super chasing to get the cedar waxwing in April when it's easy in June, you know, that right. sort of thing. Uh, good. Uh, I wanted to talk... Tell us your, I like to, each time I have a guest, I like to hear your birding story. So Heather, why don't we start with you? Tell me, how did you first start birding and then who, who were some key people in your uh, development as a birder? Well, um, before I met Marcus, my interest was in getting out in nature. Okay. I wanted somebody who would take me backpacking and hiking. And when I met Marcus, I had just done my first major backpacking trip with my brother. And he had just done his first kayaking trip with our friend Woody in the San Juan Islands in the middle of a pot of orcas. Wow. Yeah. And so my, my, I really just want to be out in nature. I didn't know about the bird thing. Okay. And that was, I, I'm not getting too personal, that was about when, how old or how long ago? 1986, October of 1986. Okay. So that was a while ago. Yes. Okay. So you guys have been together for a long time. Congratulations. Uh, so Marcus introduced you to birding as a specific hobby or a passion. Yes. And he has a little story about how he did that. Oh, let's hear it. <laughs> yeah. So being as passionate about birds as I am, that has, I guess, scared off more than one lady along yes. the way. And so I was... Uh, I was, I was much more uh, cautious about it this time around, and so one of our earlier dates, we went for a walk around Nisqually National Wildlife Refuge, November, cold, but plenty of birds around. And not frigid, maybe. Not uh, too bad a day. Not too bad. And so we walked around the whole thing, and I, I'm sure I pointed out a bald eagle or two, and maybe a chickadee that landed in front of us, but really not a, a whole lot oh, more. Oh, you had that. to be in pain. I, I was looking, I was listening, <laughs> but I, I just kept it, uh, if, it, if, it, if the bird wasn't making itself obvious, I just, I just let it go. Good discipline. And so uh, after that, Heather went over to her dad's and found a little pair of Nikon combat binoculars and, mm -hmm. and lifted those from him. And, and on our next trip around, she said, well, share, share some more of these birds, you know, tell me a little bit more about that. So. Now I'm pointing out birds, and we're hearing birds, and I'm having her look at them, and, and we came to that sort of fateful end of the uh, trip where she goes, there were so many birds out here today. This is just amazing. I can't believe how many birds there were. She, and she looks at me, and like, there weren't any more birds today, were there? <laughs> like, you didn't skip a few? Uh, it's just like... No, I just I was just a little more low key the first time around. So yeah, they were they're pretty much all here last time too. Oh, okay, but, I get uh, it. Yeah. They were a little more. <laughs> you were focused on Heather the first time, and you were teaching Heather the second. Time. Exactly. Yeah, so. that's a good strategy. Good strategy. Well, you certainly have been a good pupil if if he's your mentor. 
because you're a good bird. Well, thank you, thank you. But it's been it's been over thirty years to get there. Take some time. <laughs> Take some time. Yeah. Uh, and did I know you've bred in Mexico? I mean, I would say a lot. I don't know if you call it a lot, but I would say a really lot. And it sounds like that passion for the tropics and Mexico in particular and birding Mexico has been a, a ongoing theme of your relationship and birding experiences. Well, it's two things. One is we always leave the day after Christmas because it's our winter break. Oh, okay. Marcus's company shuts down between Christmas and New Year's. Oh, I didn't know that, okay. And we love the birds of the tropics. Um, there's just something very special about going down there, the diversity, and, and we've been there enough times, we know, we know a lot of them by ear now, which, you know, you go to a new place and that's one of the most frustrating things. You have to keep asking, what's that, what's that? And the people and the culture, um, we love the people, we love the culture, we love the food. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and over the years, you know, we've watched Mexico change. When we first went, the only birders down there were from Canada and the United States. And I'm sorry, that was about when? Well, Give the first take? time we went was in 1987. Okay, so shortly after the Nisqually experience. Yes. Right? yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, Marcus's company was taking him down there. He was working for the gas company at the time, oh, and they okay. had a trip down there. And um, we decided we wanted to keep going back. And also, in, in the right about that time, we went with our friend John to Ecuador and learned we could go travel down there and survive without a lot of tourist infrastructure. I have a little bit of Spanish. I'm working on getting better. Um, but so that's part of it, too, is we have the ability to interact now with people, whether they speak English or not, especially if we're talking about birds. So, and to see so many young birders, Mexican birders now, has yeah. just been... So that's been a, is that a, a, do you think that's a logarithmic curve, or, or is that a, been linear? I mean, it, it seems like the last five to ten years has really been, to, in my limited experience, when Latin American indigenous peoples or local peoples have really gotten into birding. Yeah. I would, I would say we're on the beginning slope of the logarithmic part of it. Okay. But we just, we love going out with these birders. We try to hire local guides whenever we can. And we've got to the point now, not as much for the birds, although it is helpful, but just for a chance to interact and talk and find out what's going on with birding in their community and their group. Uh, last year we did three Christmas bird counts in a row. In, three days uh, in a row? Uh, we had one, break, one, day break, one day break, four days, three, three out of four. I'm tired. <laughs> we did Thinking one. In, yeah, we did one in San Blas and then drove up to Mazatlan and then we did the one in the Tufta J Preserve the, the following day. Okay, so for those of us who are geographically uh, yeah. uh, limited, uh, give me a feel for what that, where, where that, it's West Coast, but yeah, I mean, so, other than that. Yeah, so we're on the West Coast. San Blas is halfway between Puerto Vallarta and Mazatlan, so okay. we're in the, just north of Central, so we're above the subtropical line. Okay. And then Mazatlan is kind of where that little, you know, the little Baja Peninsula ends. That's about where it's Straight across. across. And then <clears throat> you go up the Durango Highway, which is an amazing piece of, construction to get to the top of the Jade Preserve up in, up in the mountains. Okay, so One that's most, a significant elevation? Yeah, it's probably ooh, maybe 4,000 feet, okay. but uh, one of the most 
an all-white jay with a, you know, blue and black highlights. Beautiful. Very different yeah. looking type of jay, so yeah. quite, quite striking. So you did three Christmas bird counts last year. Uh, yeah. Tell me some of your favorite places to go in Mexico. Well, the Yucatan is right up there, although it's getting so much more commercialized, but we love the Yucatan. We love Oaxaca. Oaxaca is amazing. You know, it's a state that starts high in the Sierras and goes all the way down to the coast, and then, of course, there's a lot of really strong culture there. There's a lot of strong culture all across Mexico, which is another reason we love it, and every region is so different. But Oaxaca is kind of special that way. And then I think we keep going back to San Blas and Mazatlan because we actually know people <laughs> that remember us. And it's easy. I, I, to yeah, get it's there. a I mean, really... It's an easy flight. The roads are pretty well developed. Yes. yes. Uh, for This isn't for me. I feel pretty safe going to Mexico and birding, but I think a lot of people are terrified of the thought of being other than in a four-star hotel on a beach resort in Mexico. What's been your experience in terms of safety and just ease of managing other than in the truly beaten path? Yeah, we've, we have truly gone off the grid a lot. Um, Stephen Howell's bird finding guide to Mexico has really been our, our Bible and it still works amazingly well some 25 years later. Um, we have learned from some of our local guides that because these spots are still so good and birders go there, that as long as, as you're in sort of the same places and people know that's why you're there, then that's, it's okay. Now, there are certain places one could venture into that would not be okay. wise. Do, do you often go, just the two of you, off all by yourselves? Or do you usually have uh, a local guide slash uh, uh, person who knows their way around and can get you out of trouble if need be? I think most of the time we're, by, we're on our own. Um, we hire our friend Francisco um, when we go to San Blas because he's a good friend and, and he, he can get us to maybe see some new birds we haven't seen in that area and, and then we get to interact with him right. and his you get, family. You get to go birding with your buddy too. Yes. Right, right. And so it's a win-win for us. But, but we have learned, especially more recently, that you do need to pay attention. And he says what he does is he knows the locals and he talks to them and finds out where it's safe to go and where it isn't safe to go. Mm -hmm. But, and I think maybe that's been ramped up a little bit, but we've never had a bad experience. Very and cool. we've been, over the last 30 plus years, we've probably been 27, 28 times to Mexico. I mean, Very we've gotten cool. to the point where we go pretty much every year, even when we're doing other vacations, other parts of the year, we just love it there. Yeah, sounds so. like you're uh, a little Mexicano at heart. And <laughs> <laughs> el corazón. Sí. 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 Yeah, very nice. Uh, so you've, yeah, I know you. I remember you've done some backpacking, haven't you? Or, or you know, places where you can't drive to. Yeah, I don't know if you call it backpacking. That's what I call it. Um, in the U.S. or you know, in Mexico? So oh, I'm sorry. Only with Michael Carmody. Yeah. Where oh, we okay. did where we did the trip, he takes folks up into El Triunfo in Chiapas. Okay. And they carry all your luggage and oh. there's a place to camp. So we've never done camping on our own in Mexico. Oh, okay. I, I yeah, somehow, just in the United States. I guess States. those stories mixed up. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean the thing that's nice about Mexico is that you can you can get a bus, quite frankly, to 
almost anywhere that a road goes to. Mm -hmm. it's, or, or a rental car, depending on, <laughs> on what, your needs. What other parts of Latin America have you been? So we have been to Costa Rica. That was one of our first trips, sort of obligatory, right? Mm -hmm. uh, went to Nicaragua. My friend John Gerwin, who's a, an ornithologist, and the person that took us to Ecuador the first time 1991, when there was zero tourist infrastructure. Wow. I okay. mean, zero. <laughs> it, was, it was an adventure. Yes. Tell, us, tell me a little about the adventure. Oh, well, we flew into Quito, and we met John, and he had just been working down on the Napo River um, doing some field work, collecting birds. And at the end of the trip, he traveled with us. We rented a car and drove on the... Mindo was on the west side, right? Mm -hmm. Northwest. So we went to Mindo first, and then we went to Tena on the east side of the Andes, and then we flew down to the um, capital. Guayaquil. Guayaquil, and went on the coast. And we were with the field group, I get because they were scouting some more places down on the coast. They met us down there. But we were staying in these hotels where it was $1.50 a night, and your dinner was $1.50, and you were basically eating in somebody's dining room. So it was a very different experience. And at that time, they were still, they weren't on the dollar yet. And so, you know, <laughs> we went to change our money and the highest denomination they could give you was worth $5. So we were carrying around these giant wads of bills and like our binoculars would have fed a whole village for yeah. a year. I mean, yeah, I hear you. I, uh, I have limited experience, but I, I took uh, Kay and the kids to uh, uh, Acapulco, uh, maybe. 12, 14 years ago, and we stayed in a just a plain old resort-type hotel, uh, but uh, I had a rent-a-car, and, and uh, I had read in the, the Bird Finding Guide to Mexico, I think it was probably Howells, yep. that north of Acapulco you could go on this, uh, uh, not a barrier island, but a, a peninsula that acted like a barrier island north of Acapulco, so we drive, it's quite a ways, and there's you know, traffic, you know, the dump truck stops and you wait a half hour for it to, you know, right. that sort of thing. Uh, and got there, and we get there maybe 10 in the morning, and, and some, and I thought it would be, you know, quite a few people there. Nobody there. Uh, and uh, a fellow comes running out and asks if we want a boat ride. Uh, and I said, sure, we'd love a boat ride. And, and, and I said, how much? He said, $10. And I thought, great, $10 a piece, this is terrific. No, $10. Uh, uh, so ten dollars, we get in this beautiful little aluminum boat, an outboard motor. I'm beautiful, this is cool. And it fit the four of us, and we go out, and he takes us all around the lagoon on the inside of this uh, this uh, peninsula, maybe two or three hours. See all mostly waders and terns and mm -hmm. gulls, but it was just a drop that beautiful day. He stops out in the middle where the sandbar gets high and beaches the thing. We all go for a swim. We get back in, and and we get back, and it's maybe one. 12.30, 1 o'clock, and he basically says, it's best we can communicate, you must be hungry. And I said, yes, where can we eat? He said, come with me to the hotel, to the, to the restaurant. Well, the restaurant was his backyard with a picnic table, uh, and uh, we stop, and we go, and, and he says, would you like fish or shrimp? Uh, and Kay and the kids said they like shrimp, and I said, I'd like fish. So he points to the market and his kids go running over to the market and come back with shrimp. And he grabs his net and goes running down to the ocean and starts throwing his net and catches a fish that must have been two and a half feet long. It was 15 pound fish at least. It was a big fish. I don't know what it was, snapper or something. It was a big fish. And he comes back and fillets it 
and splays it out and puts it on the grill and cooks me the fish. <laughs> Serves it just beautifully. His wife had the fire going. It's just some of the best fish I've ever eaten. But it was like, it would have fed 40 people. Yeah. I mean, it was just, but if he caught a small fish, I would have gotten a small fish. He caught a big fish, I got a big fish. But we sat there all afternoon uh, in hammocks he had laid out. We played cards, we played spades, we were big enough. We played spades and drank pop, pop and I drank beers and he'd go, he'd send his four-year-old over to the store to get me a beer whenever <laughs> I wanted a beer. The kids wanted a pop, he'd run, they'd run over and get it. We probably stayed till, you know, Tell I was afraid I wouldn't get back before dark, and we left and drove back, and it was one of the best days we ever had in Mexico. Wow. It was so cool. That's great. Yeah. So, meeting local people is kind of one of the great things about traveling. And, Absolutely. And the Mexicans are so genuinely warm and friendly like that. We've had a fair number of those kind of experiences where it's just it's just hard to believe sometimes. It's it just, is. And so grateful. I mean, yeah. for the business. I mean, we, we are just a source of revenue. And I mean, you know, I think I tipped him more than the cost of the meal and felt like I got a bargain. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was, yeah, a terrific, terrific experience. Uh, so uh, we are midway through the, the birding year. Do you have any uh, trips planned? Uh, I mean, assuming you can travel again this year? Well, we definitely know we want to go east, eastern Washington again. You know, mm -hmm. we usually do our birdathon and we weren't able to do that this year. So we know we want to get over there. But beyond that, I don't think we've really... No, it's everything's Things so locked of, down. Yeah, it's hard to make plans beyond tomorrow right yeah. now, it seems right, like these right. days. Uh, so I'm going to switch subjects a little bit. Mark, you, for many years, you've been really involved in the local Audubon Society. And, and I'm not sure, Heather, if you have been, but I know, Mark, you've been president, I think, yep. at one point. Yep. And, but more th interesting to me than that was you taught a beginning birding class. Didn't you, beginning or, you taught beginning yep. birding. Beginning birding. So I, I've had many friends that I've tried to help learn a little bit about birding. I'm, I'm seeing Marion now, and I'm working through that process of trying to feed her at a, at a rate that is digestible and not overwhelming and, mm -hmm. and that. How did, how did you approach a beginning birding class and how, what was your experience with that? Yeah, I did it for over 10 years for Tahoma Audubon Society and a lot of retirees would come, or very young. Uh, it was a very, it was, it was very dichotomous in that uh, regards. Um, and I would just try to give them the tools to, to see Be more the specific, birds. give yeah. them the tools. Right, so just what do you look at, you know? What's the size of the bird? What's the beak like, since that determines everything about them? And where's the white? Because in our gray climate, and I would teach it usually in November, where everything's black, gray, and white, even, even when the birds are colored, to teach them that they can pretty much identify all the big stuff just by where the white on the bird was. Peterson's field guide, the first really top-notch field guide was black and white photographs, yeah. and it was just fine. And, yeah, and it, and it works. So, and then just sort of pounding that in and just having them just say it out loud and, and being part of it and learning, learning the vocabulary of birding. I mean, that's what it is. It's, there's a jargon that has, that's there for a reason, so you can be a little more precise. And then, Two field trips. I do three classes and two field trips. Okay, so it's a, a, you know, not a tiny class, but a, a limited scope course. Yeah. Obviously, three, three, three classes. How to use your binoculars, how to make them focus, how to clean them. I mean, just uh, some of the, just making sure at least all the, the, 
the parameters and basics were handled so they could have a good time and, and you know see what they're seeing. Um, but yeah, just going, there's nothing more magical than going with a new group of birders down to Titlow Beach or some local park and looking at ducks in November and all their finery and they're displaying and chasing each other and they're big and they don't move too fast and only some of them dive. So it's, there's a, there's a very good positive you know, feedback. Some of the basic things, you know, males are not always the same as females and they're yeah. big enough to notice that and you know, yeah. they tend to pair up, which makes it easier. Yes. At least yeah. the right time of year. So, yeah, it just makes it a very magical experience. And, and of course, after doing that for so long, I, I keep running into various students I've had along the way as, mm -hmm. as we're taking our walks along the waterfront or going back down to Titlow. So, yeah, yeah very nice. So, you taught, how big were your classes? Uh, they're usually 12 to 15, it's okay. about average. So, you probably have 100 plus. Uh, pupils out there somewhere. I see some of them. I've done one CBC on your area, so I know that you have some uh, some pupils that yes. tend to come down. I don't know if you have year after year people or just the that year's people. But. Yeah, yeah. So I heard Heather's birding story closely to you. Tell me your birding story. How did you get started in birding? My, my first birding experience, that, that magical moment, was at, at scout camp in northern Minnesota. Uh, we had a a chap, the reservation chaplain, uh, who was actually a Jesuit priest, and his uh, PhD was in ornithology. And uh, so he had a, a bird banding permit, and he was doing work on dialects of song sparrows. Wow. This all makes much more sense now in retrospect compared to when mm -hmm. I was 15 years old. Yes. Um, but what I remember the most is he took me out while he's banding birds, and he let me hold one of the song sparrows in my hand. Very cool. And that first time you hold the bird, there's just, you, you can barely even tell it's in your hand, but you, yet you can feel the heart beating right there, and it's just looking at you. It's, yeah. it's, People are shocked when I tell them how much birds weigh. Yeah. And I say, well, that's a hummingbird. That weighs a, a, probably like three quarters of a teaspoon of water. How could that be? You know? Yeah. <laughs> What did he tell me? He says, it's like having a nickel in your hand. And, mm -hmm. and, and so then you go and put a nickel in your hand. It's like you can barely, if it wasn't just for the difference in temperature, you could barely even tell it's in your hand. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's just that light. Yeah. Birds yeah. have these amazing uh, physiologic adaptations. I'm, I'm plowing, groaning, plowing my way through the Ornell, uh, Cornell University uh, bird biology course online. Yeah. Have, you, have you seen that or heard about yeah, that? Yeah, I'm familiar with it. Yes. it. It's a fabulous book and online course and uh, it, it starts but a lot of it is about uh, everything about a bird is so that they can fly. Right. And what does it take to fly? It takes a very light skeleton. It takes incredibly efficient organs. It takes a tremendous amount of energy per you know moment, day, etc. And you know, efficient heart, efficient lungs, efficient gut, lightweight skeleton, all these things. It's, birds are pretty amazing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Good. So that was your first day. Yeah, that was my first one. And then I was a biology major, so I took all the, all the ology courses, as I say. And, um, and so when I took my first ornithology course with Dr. Dwayne Warner, Dwayne Warner uh, it was just a lot of fun. We, he did a lot of field trips. I, I saw my first, you know, 100,000 snow geese, you know, in western Minnesota, North Dakota. Mm -hmm. 
you know, we got to watch the greater prairie chickens displaying and booming. So wow. all very highly memorable experiences. So some of those burning spectacles you got right off the bat. Right off the bat, and you know, with a group of old friends and people that are equally interested and avid. And at the same time, I was working at the Bell Museum of Natural History. I was one of their naturalist docents and, and, and would take the kids around and you know, give them experiences, bringing the dioramas to life and teaching mm -hmm. about birds and plants and what, whatever it was focused on. And I discovered that a lot of these other docents were, were bird watchers as well. And they had a whole group that would go out every Friday in the spring and have a little birds and breakfast, shall we mm -hmm. say. <clears throat> and it was just a whole lot of fun. And, and one of those people was a gentleman who's now one of my best friends, uh, John Gerwin, who's the curator at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences, gentleman went to Ecuador with. Right. Yeah. And got to know him, and he was back there skinning birds and sort of learned the other side of the museum as well through all, through all that. And I've been bird watching Birding ever, ever since. since, and forever, whatever state I would happen to be in, I was trying to make a living as I call an itinerant naturalist. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so you did that for a period of time after college? Yeah, I did. So Until you so. bowed to the economic pressures of life and uh, got a job otherwise. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So <clears throat> it hasn't slowed you down too much. I see no, I, quite I, a bit. I just learned, realized that it probably wasn't going to be my vocation, but I could certainly have it be my avocation. <laughs> so. I hear you. Heather, you've, uh, you've done uh, quite a bit of birding lately. You retired recently, yes? Uh, it seems like you've been out a lot more since then. Yes. It's, um, yeah, I retired two years ago from the state of Washington where I worked implementing the State Growth Management Act for 23 years with wow. counties and cities. Important work. And I got that job because of Tom Audubon being conservation chair Very in cool. my volunteer work. Um, so. It's a great distraction in this time of COVID. Oh my goodness. Um, you know, but it's always like when things get really tough in my life, and as you know, being retired, it's a big transition. Oh, for sure. And so, you know, getting out there, I mean, it, nature has always been my respite and, you know, I guess my religion. You know, it's our your, place to your, go. Your place of, for, uh, of comfort and solace, yes. Yes, absolutely. And so, just been able to get, get out more, and then in this last year, just with, the way things are unfolding, um, it's just been a, a great, you know, I've always been averse to what I call birding testosterone. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think you may have caught a little. Oh, yes, I think so. But it's, I mean, it's a great distraction and it's a great thing to do and it, it and it, and we're participating in adding to science by getting out there and recording all these birds. eBird is, is, you know, it's probably the only citizen science I've ever really done. So, it, I mean, I, I Probably. Okay. Um, so it's really cool. Really cool. And like you say, we just have an amazing group of people here in Pierce County that are getting out there. And that's been the other nice thing. We get out, we run into you or Bruce or one of our other friends, and we get to chat a little bit because we're all outside and we're looking at the birds together. And it's just a great way to, to connect with nature, to participate in something bigger than you are, and to be with people you care about, I guess, is that, yeah. that's a big part of it. It is cool. It is cool. Uh, yeah, uh, Mark is going to walk over and close the door. It just started pouring here, uh, and we are in his garage. So, 
Uh, I am very grateful that we decided not to meet uh, outdoors, which was our original plan today. Yes. So that's good. That's good. Uh, so I want to thank you both for being guests today. It's been really fun talking to you, and it's been fun getting to know you a little bit over the last. I mean, I've known Marcus and sort of known Heather for 20 or 30 years, uh, but uh, probably more in the last couple of three years have seen a lot more of both of you, certainly, especially in these last couple of months of... Uh, and Marcus has uh, not had to spend his daylight hours doing uh, corporate duty and has been more able to bird. Yeah. Not traveling as much. <laughs> yeah. Are there, is there anything else you guys wanted to make sure we talk about today? I not think really? that's great. Okay. Hey, thanks so much for being on. I appreciate it. You take care. All right. Well, that wraps up the Bird Banner Podcast, episode number 64, with Heather Balish and Marcus Roenig. I had fun today. Hope you enjoyed listening makes me really, really anxious to get back to Latin America. I've been hoping to visit my daughter, Jean, who lives in Costa Rica, and this rick'em-snick'em-dog-gone COVID pandemic has put the bolish on that. But anyway, I'm anxious to get down and see Jean again. You can hear about Jean's life in Costa Rica on episode number 62. She was my guest, and we had fun talking about her passion for permaculture gardening uh, and agroforestry, along with all sorts of other stuff on episode number 62. hope you enjoyed that, or if you haven't listened, check it out. Uh, I also uh, talked after the podcast to Marks and Heather about ideas for other guests on the podcast. I tend to do that often after an episode when I have my guests on and kind of pick their brain about people they'd like to see on as guests. I want to pick your brain about that, too. Uh, if any of you have good ideas of people you think you'd like to hear about as a guest on the Bird Banner podcast, please let me know. You can direct message me on Facebook or Instagram. Uh, you can reach me on the contact page of the birdbanner.com website. Or uh, if you have other ways to get a hold of me, go ahead and do that. But I'd uh, love to hear your people, your suggestions for people you'd like to hear from on the podcast. I really enjoy meeting new people that way. It's the main reason I do this is what's not fun about talking to bird is about birding. And I get to meet and uh, get to know other people that otherwise I might not get a chance to meet. So if you have people you'd really like to hear from, let me know. That would be much appreciated. Uh, you can also do that by leaving a review uh, on the podcast feed that you use, uh, and that'll give me feedback on the episode and also maybe ideas of you, people you might like to hear from. So thanks for listening. Until next time, good birding. Good day. <laughs>